Welcome to Unaffordable, a podcast about affordability solutions in Boulder County, brought to you by Boulder Weekly and KGNU. I'm Angela K. Evans. The secret's out. Boulder, Colorado is beautiful, progressive, walkable, safe, and increasingly unaffordable. But Boulder's not alone in its affordability crisis. The need for reliable, affordable housing outweighs supply in many areas of the U.S. Across the country, legislators, nonprofit organizations, city planners, housing advocates, and regular people are searching for answers. Unsurprisingly, discussions about affordable housing can be confusing, with numerous programs, funding sources, and strategies involved. The amount of bureaucracy on federal and local levels can be intimidating, both for those who need affordable housing and for those in the community concerned about it. But as we've heard over and over in our reporting, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to the affordability crisis. There are many facets that cause unaffordability, and even more problems that can arise from it. No one solution is capable of fixing the entire problem. In each episode of Unaffordable, we'll present an interview with someone involved in affordability solutions, from design to homeowners association costs to transportation access and more. This is just one person's opinion on one aspect covered in our written series, which you can find at boulderweekly.com. Subscribe to Unaffordable wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen to each episode. Today on Unaffordable, we're talking about manufactured housing with Deborah Cantrell, law professor at CU Boulder, where she helped create the Sustainable Community Development Clinic in 2016. Based off of input from local communities, the clinic works with health, housing, and community development planners and advocates on affordable housing, land use policies, zoning, and encouraging economic empowerment and development in underserved or underrepresented communities. Before CU, Deborah was at Yale Law School, and prior to her work in academia, she ran an anti-poverty law program in California and a legal aid organization in New Mexico. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So when talking about manufactured housing, it's hard not to bring up John Oliver's 2019 segment about the predatory practices of some park owners, but really he explored the challenges of the mobile home park model, which is split ownership. Although residents often own their own mobile homes, they don't own the land underneath. And mobile home park owners lease lots to residents where they charge rent and are responsible for the entire property from roads to sewer systems, water, electricity, and other infrastructure in common areas. For years, parks have been run by mom and pop owners around the country, keeping them affordable for a lot of homeowners, many whose mobile homes depreciate in value each year which is totally unlike most other real estate investments. You know, he really went into how local park owners are retiring, making way for investors and corporate owners to come in, buy up parks, and then they institute new policies, even restrictions. Often they raise lot rents to market rate, forcing many long-term residents out. So in short, in many parks, despite owning their own homes, residents feel powerless when up against the forces of park owners who own the land. So is this why Sustainable Community Development Clinic started looking into manufactured housing communities in Colorado? Or what was the impetus for you at the clinic? You're right that one of the main reasons I was interested in looking into manufactured housing and mobile home parks is because the dynamic of especially large corporate owners coming in and buying up land and essentially putting folks at risk for not only 
losing their location of their home, but also losing their homes themselves. Also, as you mentioned earlier, I'm really interested in the way in which locations relate to health equity, relate to other kinds of equity issues. And as you noted, park owners are responsible for maintaining the water and sewer infrastructure. And I was hearing from mobile home park communities that there were water quality issues. I was hearing from mobile home park communities that their kids didn't have any place to play because there were park regulations that said that kids couldn't be out playing in the park. So those were a range of issues, particularly equity kinds of issues, that got me interested in working with mobile home park communities. So as the clinic you know, looked more into it and started doing some research, what are some of the biggest issues you found? The first issue is one that we're going to talk about, I think, a lot today, which is that mobile homeowners don't own the land on which their homes reside, and their homes, what called mobile, are anything but mobile. It can cost anywhere from a couple of thousand to twenty thousand dollars to actually move a mobile home. Some mobile homes are not transportable at all anymore just because of their age. And so the fact that somebody who owns their home and has a sense of that place as a permanent um, residence, mm-hmm. Um, can be at risk for experiencing homelessness. Huge, huge issue. And then it struck me how many of these community members really had a sense of themselves as communities. And that point of feeling feeling that you belong really made me think these were communities that could mobilize and organize and try and push back against unscrupulous park owners and push back in terms of unjust, unfair, unreasonable rules and regulations, again, telling kids they can't play on park property, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Or limiting the ways in which homeowners can typically use land, restricting whether you can plant a rose bush here or plant a vegetable garden there. Those are the kinds of activities that we think of as typically available to homeowners that often are not available to mobile home owners. Yeah, and I know we've talked about this a little bit in the past as well. There, When it comes to water quality issues, this idea that the park owner owns all the infrastructure and everything from the boundary of the park in. So when you own your own home in a different type of neighborhood, the municipality is responsible for getting water to your house and kind of maintaining those piping up into your house and making sure the water quality um, is sufficient. But in when we're talking about health equity in these parks, the municipalities really only um, are responsible up into the park boundary. And that's created some issues as well, correct? Exactly right. So I often think about it this way. If you have a single family residence, we all expect that the homeowner is going to maintain the pipes within their own home, you know, within the walls of the home. And the municipality only is supposed to bring good, clean, safe water up into where the connection is to the home. In mobile home parks, that connection point, as you said, is the park, not the mobile home. So mobile homeowners take care of the pipes and everything within their own mobile homes, but they have no control over that expanse of pipe that runs from where the municipality connects all the way to their home. 
And as you said, park owners, particularly large corporate owners who are really looking to extract profits, aren't really that interested in maintaining infrastructure. They're willing to maintain it as modestly as possible, and that can create some water quality issues. And while the water may still be safe to drink, it's unpalatable, it smells, it's discolored. None of the rest of us tolerate that kind of water quality, and our community members who live in mobile home parks have no choice but to tolerate it. Mm -hmm. That's an equity issue. Right. And this comes back to also this idea that uh, manufactured housing is seen as the largest reserve of unsubsidized affordable housing, really in the country, definitely here in Boulder County. And because of that, preserving it is a stated goal of the state, of local governments. But why is that such a challenge? Let's, let's unpack this idea of unsubsidized affordable housing first. So remember, when we talk about subsidized affordable housing, we're usually talking about housing where there are some, there's some form of government money coming in, federal, state, local money coming in to help a tenant pay, typically pay the rent. So you might think of Section 8 vouchers or other kinds of housing like that. And that money lets a tenant pay for rent. So that's the subsidy. But the government typically puts some conditions on it. And they're conditions that can be tough for families to meet. They can be conditions around citizenship. They can be conditions about who can be in the household, the number of people, or whether somebody in the household can or can't have some sort of past involvement with the legal system. These are tough challenges for lots of families. And so it's important to have a source of affordable housing that doesn't come with those restrictions. And that happens with unsubsidized affordable housing. And really, literally, manufactured housing is the only source of unsubsidized affordable housing. And that's why it's so important to protect it. And it's such a meaningful source of housing for a whole range of our community members. But it has been a challenge for local governments and communities to preserve it. You know, not only the issues we've already talked about, but some more we'll get into as well. Um, and I know that's also why you and a group from Boulder County, really, but also the state has helped to write some of Colorado's new manufactured housing legislation that has been implemented in the last few years. You know, this updated the state's Mobile Home Park Act, created a robust dispute resolution mechanism that allows residents to push back if they may have been treated unfairly. And it also instituted the opportunity to purchase law. This creates a pathway for mobile homeowner owners and the residents of mobile home parks to purchase the land, to purchase their park if it goes up for sale. From your perspective, what do, what do these new laws really seek to do? I think they're seeking to do two different things. One is to acknowledge that when you have this split ownership, there can be tensions between the landowner and the mobile homeowner. And there should be a way of making sure that both landowners and homeowners have balance in that relationship. So if the landowner can um, extract control over homeowners in one way, the homeowners need to have some ability to step up and keep the landowner under control. So that's one, one facet of the laws. The other is to try and eliminate split ownership. So 
many mobile homeowners say, we'd, we'd love to own not only our home, but the land underneath. And we'd love to protect our community and work as a community. And so the opportunity to purchase side of the um, legislative changes is designed to move towards that goal, eliminate split ownership. And it's important, you know, I recently learned a statistic which just stunned me. If you look at the rate of return on investment for corporate owners of mobile home parks, it's 480%. Wow. 480%. If you look at the rate of return on most commercial property, it's down in the single digits. Right. That's stunning. That's stunning. So there's you know, a huge um, way in which park owners... Uh, because they only own the land, you know, are just raking the money out of the communities. And it would be great for those communities to keep that money inside the park, work on improving the park, work on improving the conditions of their community in the way that they want to, not in the way in which somebody, some large, faceless, nameless corporation says they need to. Right. And that's ex particularly striking given, like I mentioned in the beginning, that mobile home ownership isn't like other real estate investments in that the mobile homes often depreciate over time versus appreciate, which is how we think about most home ownership. Right. And notice, of course, the depreciation, the burden of that falls on the mobile homeowner, not the park owner. So the park owner says, hooray, <laughs> I just am going to continue to make the profit that I get to make because I charge rents and things like that. And the mobile homeowner is going to take all of the burden of the depreciating asset. You're listening to Unaffordable, a podcast collaboration between Boulder Weekly and KGNU. Today we're talking about manufactured housing with Deborah Cantrell, a law professor at CU Boulder. I mean, I want to focus in on this opportunity to purchase legislation. It started in 2020, correct? Correct. Um, and I know you spent at the clinic a long time looking into similar laws in other states to really build a robust, hopefully successful law that would actually make change and kind of learn from other people's um, experience thus far. What, what did that show you? There are only about 16 other states that have opportunity to purchase laws. So there are not a lot of states out there that follow this model. But if you look at those other states, you do see some similar features. And particularly in states that um, where mobile home owner residents have had the most success in purchasing parks, you see a couple of things. One is a sufficient amount of time once mobile homeowners learn that the park owner is going to sell the park, a sufficient amount of time to get themselves together to figure out how their own financing is going to work, whether they can afford financing, whether they can afford to make an offer on the park. That takes some time, particularly if you're talking about mobile homeowners who aren't real estate investors. Most of us are not real estate investors, so most of us would need this kind of time to get our ducks in a row. The other feature is transparency, making sure that whatever information the park owner is getting from the potential buyer, that that information is also shared with the residents. So the residents really understand 
what they're up against. What kind of offer is the other potential buyer making? And what kind of disclosures has the park owner made about the condition of the park so that residents can really understand as well, what are they buying? Are they buying an asset that has some quality to it? So transparency and enough time are the two most important pieces. The final piece that's helpful, I think, is something that says that a park owner really has to treat the residents fairly. There has to be some good faith. Sometimes statutes like Colorado puts it in terms of lack of bad faith, but there has to be some commitment by the park owner to engage with the residents and not just be spiteful and say to them, no matter what you do, I'm not going to accept your offer because screw you, I want to sell to a corporation. Right. So all three of those aspects made it into the new Colorado law. You know, and we've seen that work in certain cases here in the state. Previous to the law, there was a community in Longmont, the Longmont mobile home community, that was able to cooperatively purchase their park, and they've been running it for a few years. And more recently with San Susi here in Boulder County off of Highway 93, you know, just this last summer, they were able to purchase their park from actually a rather large corporate owner, but it's also failed, right? There's Table Mesa Village across the highway from San Susi that has tried and has made several offers on their park and they weren't accepted. And now the park is no longer for sale. It didn't sell to anybody. And then also Hickory Village Mobile Home Park in Fort Collins, which the residents tried to put together an offer. There was some questions on timing and transparency and things that did come up as the law was sort of tested. And ultimately, they weren't able to make an offer and, and you know, it was sold to a large corporation. So, you know, those three things make it successful. But what else really does it take for a park owner and this cooperative model of cooperative ownership of residents? What does that take to be successful? Let me start first by talking about whether the Colorado law is as successful as we want in terms of having a gold standard and then talk about the cooperative model. You're right, the Colorado law has time, 90 days. It does have some transparency. And there is a requirement to negotiate not in bad faith. More time would be helpful. So there are other states that have longer amounts of time. 90 days is tight. It's tight. And The Colorado law, I think, now that we've seen it work, while it has transparency, I think it could be tightened up more. In other words, you could require more transparency or be clear about how the transparency is supposed to work. So requirements about park owner disclosing sooner rather than later, things like that. So I think even the Colorado law could be improved in those regards. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that would have helped with the parks, uh, the park, the mobile home owner residents that tried to purchase their parks where it wasn't successful, I think more time and more transparency would have been beneficial in both those regards. Mm -hmm. So now let's turn to the cooperative model. The cooperative model, right, by definition, is cooperative. It says that every mobile home owner resident is going to share ownership in the land. That takes some real commitment and trust. And communities need to have worked towards that sense of themselves as a community, as a collective, in order to feel comfortable stepping into the cooperative model. 
Otherwise, that's a big leap. If you don't have trust amongst your community members already, and suddenly you say, let's all own this land together, that can be daunting. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing in the Colorado law that requires that the purchase be by cooperative. It's um, encouraged, the, the state law acknowledges it, but there can be other forms of ownership, so a community land trust, things like that. It's often that the most affordable financing for the mobile home communities is through a nationwide entity that's really focused on resident-owned communities. And that entity, Rock USA, does preference the cooperative model. Mm-hmm. I'll just say one more thing about the cooperative model. While it might not be so familiar to many of us, it actually is really old in the U.S. It's got a long heritage. If you think back to our time as an agricultural community, dairies, things like that, those kinds of work historically have been cooperatives. And so our four ancestors knew the cooperative model robustly, loved the cooperative model. We've just forgotten about it. So, you know, part of what's happening here is is trying to re- um, learn the history that comes before us and use it and see its benefits. Yeah. And like you said in the law um, that there, you know, resident owned communities is encouraged, although not required and does sort of seem like the cooperative model is taking the strongest foothold in Colorado as, you know, a solution to preserving affordable um, manufactured housing communities. But there are also some major challenges, like you mentioned. You mentioned uh, Rock USA and just getting the financial commitments and backing. Um, there's also the idea of a willing seller, um, right? That the seller A wants to sell the park and B works through the process um, in good faith to sell it to the residents and also community ca- capacity. And these have been tested a little bit, like I mentioned. Um, so, what are some of those major? challenges, especially when it comes to things like finances and and working with the seller and the community, you know, communication and capacity. Right. I think from the mobile homeowner resident perspective, the biggest hurdle is access to capital. It's not that Every mobile homeowner can, you know, go to the, their backyard and dig up the pot of gold and they all put it together and there's the capital. By the fact that mobile home communities are affordable communities, we often have folks of modest means, low income, not folks who typically have access to the big capital markets. So they can't go get the $4 million loan just like that. So... You have to find a financing source that also is willing to work with less than familiar, less than experienced borrowers. Mm -hmm. Rock USA has played just a critical role in providing financing for resident-owned mobile home communities. I, I can't say enough good things about Rock USA and the way it's even stimulated capital, and also brought other potential money to the table. So foundations, you know, charitable money coming to the table because a Rock USA can say, we'll put up this kind of financing and then others will come in with some grant money or some donated money that will allow the residents 
to move forward. So capital, access to capital, number one, number one hurdle. One thing I will say too about Rock USA that I found interesting, although they are, you know, a financial institution, at least the capital side of it, and are obviously very diligent, they haven't had a co-op fail to date. They have provided capital and and helped communities get organized in over 200 parks throughout the country, some with this opportunity to purchase legislation, some without. Um, so they do have a history of being successful too, which I'm sure helps drawing in that other funding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and experienced folks who can come in and work with communities and who have some sense of, okay, we better check out that, you know, we need to get an engineer in here to check out the infrastructure. We need to get this other kind of surveying done. So enough experience with parks to also know where the, the traps might, might be. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to capital, I do think um, having a park owner who is motivated to uh, work with residents. So my own experience has been that park owners, if they decide to sell, sometimes that relationship with the mobile homeowner residents has soured. And there's a way in which a park owner just doesn't want to work with the residents anymore. And and I've called it a spite right. Um, And it is just that, a park owner saying, residents, you've been a thorn in my side, screw you, I'm going to sell to anybody but you. There's no reason behind it, it's spite. And, and I'm, I'm worried about making sure that uh, park owners can't act spitefully. Mm-hmm. They can legitimately pick a better offer or even a different offer if the terms of that offer are more appealing. They shouldn't be able to reject a resident offer because the park owner just wants to be spiteful. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when it comes to community capacity, you know, we've already talked about this quite a bit, but it is interesting, you know, that model where the entire community owns the land and it's not separate lots, which means that management of that park all that infrastructure we talked about before, whether that's utilities or sewer or playgrounds, common areas, park rules and policies, that all now falls to the community, which are often um, volunteer positions. And I believe Rock USA kind of advocates for that to be volunteer, that there's no um, homeowner who's a paid management. But how does that come into play in terms of whether or not these will ultimately be successful? I'm really hopeful about community engagement and organization. I think it's critical to all of us leading flourishing lives. So I'm optimistic about the ability of communities to learn how to work together, to work collectively, to find a way forward for mutual gain. I also know that for many people, the idea of having to work in a group is not a positive thought, right? Everybody comes up with the story about the group that gets dominated by the loud voice. And those those stories are true. Those are real problems. I think they can be navigated a couple of ways. One, they can be navigated by carefully tailoring the legal documents that surround 
whatever it is, a cooperative, a nonprofit um, that provide for some, you know, bumpers to make sure that no one person or no small group can take control. I also think communities have to be clear-eyed about that. And when problematic dynamics come up, you've got to step into those difficult conversations. So part of organizing, I think, also includes practice with difficult conversations and start with the easy, difficult conversation. Hey, do you think you could ask your kid to stop dropping their bike in my driveway? Start with that small conversation. Practice there before you have to have the larger conversation. Hey, we're going to have to raise rents because the sewer pipe broke again and we just got the estimate and it's really expensive. Sounds like that could actually be beneficial to all of us, whether we live in one of these communities or not, learning to have those conversations. You know, looking at the resident-owned communities, like we've said, it does seem like the pathway that Colorado is really focused on, a lot of communities in Colorado are pursuing. But do you see other potential solutions um, to preserving manufactured housing, you know, besides this resident-owned community model? Absolutely. One I've already mentioned, a land trust, a community land trust. So that's another great way of, of preserving land for a particular use. So the idea there is that there's a trust set up that owns, actually owns the land and owns the land in perpetuity forever, and then enters into a long-term lease with all of the residents to preserve the community. So leases of 99 years or something, something like that, and enters into a lease with a community organization that then leases out the individual lots to, co- you know, collect rent. So that's been a successful model. Right. That's like Mapleton here. In Correct. Right. Exactly. Right. Which has been around since the 90s in that, exactly. in that organizational model. There have also been, you know, lo- locality, municipalities, government, you know, entities that have stepped up and purchased mobile home parks to uh, preserve them as permanently affordable housing. So that's another model as well, right, is to have a, uh, a locality step up and say, as part of building out the affordable housing organization's permanently affordable housing stock, it's going to go into the mobile home park business. So that's what the city of Boulder has done with Ponderosa right now and has a plan to keep that community permanently affordable. So that's another model. You know, the challenge there can be that you've substituted one kind of park owner for another kind of park owner. And that doesn't mean that the frictions that exist between a landlord and a tenant go away just because you've substituted private park owner for public park owner. Hopefully they're notably reduced because a public park owner is motivated in ways um, that a private park owner isn't, but you still have that you know, landlord-tenant relationship to navigate. And most likely certain conditions on ownership that brings back that conversation about unsubsidized versus subsidized, right? When a city owns the whole park, a lot of times they'll put deed restrictions on on the homes and different things to preserve permanently affordable housing like they do in apartment buildings and other types of housing around municipalities. But those issues with conditions, right, whether it's documentation status or um, criminal justice involvement background or all of those things. 
is a problem. Absolutely. To the extent a public owner is going to start to bring in conditions that look like the same kinds of conditions that happen with subsidized housing, it can become problematic. Um, Well, great. Thank you so much, Deborah, for spending the time with us today and kind of getting into these details about manufactured housing. You know, it's been a big topic in Boulder County for a couple years, as evidenced by all this work on the legislation. And, you know, I'm interested to see how it all plays out as we keep testing this, these new laws. I am also interested to see how it plays itself out. And I, uh, I am hopeful that maybe we'll see some legislative fixes to the statute. And hopefully we, we see more successful uh, resident purchases along several different kinds of varieties. The more, the better in my book. You've been listening to Unaffordable. I'm Angela Evans. Today I was talking with Deborah Cantrell, law professor at CU Boulder, who has worked specifically in manufactured housing legislation at the state level. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you.